Welcome to Threads of Sustainability, where you get to hear the passionate, informative, and engaging conversations of creatives, makers, manufacturers, and producers from all over the globe. We explore what sustainability can look like in the quilting, fiber, and textile world, and I'm your host, Bridget O'Flaherty, also known as the Sustainable Quilter. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Threads of Sustainability. I'm your host, Bridget O'Flaherty, and I am a textile artist who's really curious about what's going on in the world of textiles around sustainability. So I jump around asking different people about these things that they're doing. And I had the opportunity this summer to go to the Twist Festival, which is a fiber festival held held in Quebec. And Oh, it was a really exciting little adventure and kind of took me in a different direction. I often talk about quilting and quilters, but this is really heavily focused on the fibers and knitting, weaving, yarns, various different things like that. And they asked me to come and do some interviews with some of their experts that were at the show. And I had this really great opportunity to talk to a few different people about the wool industry, the fiber sheds, the linen industry, some projects that are going on in uh, sustainability in the different universities in Quebec and what that's looking like. And I've had a chance to also talk about some of the different business models that people are taking on in the textile and fiber world around sustainability. So some really cool conversations. And I I really hope that you enjoy them. The um, I'll talk to you at the end a little bit about the Twist Festival a little bit more, and how you can find out more information about that, because it is one worth going to if you are in the region, or even if you are not, I would make a point to go to this one because it's a really great festival. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed these uh, these three interviews that I got to do. The first interview that I did was with um, a, a professor at Concordia University, um, Kathleen Vaughn, and she is doing some really interesting research asking textile enthusiasts, people across the country, what it is that motivates them in their textile practice and trying to gauge what kind of impact or what kind of interest people have around sustainability. So she had over 190 responses to her uh, survey. And we talk about some of those results and some of the implications of some of those results and where we think that's coming from and some of the narratives in the textile world. So it's a super interesting conversation. And I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Kathleen. Um, I am talking to you here at Twist, and we are going to be putting this into a recording and an episode for the Threads of Sustainability podcast. Thank you guys for showing up to hear us talk. And um, I am really excited to talk to you about some of the research that you've been doing. You've been digging in a little bit around what wool is like in Canada, and you've done a whole bunch of research. So I'm going to kind of just pass it over to you. And I probably will interject with questions because I always get curious when people start talking. But tell us really where how this started for you and then give us some more of the details about what you found in your research. With pleasure, Bridget. Thank you so much for being interested in the work that I'm doing. So I'm Kathleen Vaughn. I'm an artist professor at Concordia University and somebody who loves to knit and has always loved to knit. So I think my, it goes right back to early childhood memories. I have a brother who's three years younger than me, who came out as a giant baby. He didn't fit any of the hand-knit things that people had 
given my mother thinking a nice normal-sized baby would enjoy them. And so I got them all for my dolls. Okay. And so I had this <laughs> wonderful trove of, you know, this would have been in the 60s, I guess. It was mostly wool. And I was fascinated by this whole idea of how you made things with wool, how you created an object from this thread, and how the thread, the, the, the yarn itself, came into being. And so this so, is really young for you. Yeah, really, this is really, really young. young. Okay. Yeah. And so I can remember as a child sitting in the backyard, somehow I got hold of knitting needles and some wool, trying to figure out how knitting worked. And wow. then thankfully some adult intervened. And, I <laughs> <laughs> and you learned some of those stuff learned. along the way. Yeah. I learned. And so knitting has always been a great pleasure for me. But as an artist who works uh, in multiple media, including increasingly in textiles, I started to be concerned about how wool is created, how yarn is created, how wool cloth is created, and how we can use wool as a sustainable and beautiful material in art and design. So thinking more and more about the sustainability side. Yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up and went to art school at a time where, you know, I studied painting and drawing, so I was learning acrylic paint, yeah. basically creating artworks made of plastic that are probably somewhere never decomposing in one of our landfills. Yeah, yeah. And so it became became important for me as somebody who was creating work, whether it was something I made for somebody to wear yeah. or something that was an artwork that was made to live in somebody's home or a museum, that it would eventually be able to rot. Yeah. I really want my work to be able to rot. And I have this passion for the education side of things to ensure that the students that I'm teaching at in fine arts at Concordia now are making conscious choices when they make nice. materials choices. Yeah. So we don't always choose not to use acrylic paint. Sometimes sure. there's an important reason to do that. Yeah. But we think about what we're doing making as we're the, doing it. Yeah, making yeah. those conscious choices for, for your material uses exactly. along the way, which is a super important part around, I think, kind of just sort of slowing down in the process of what we're doing as mm -hmm. well, instead of trying to crank things out, taking that time to have some thought around it. I, I left the textile quilt world for a little while, and when I came back to it, I came back to it with a, a different lens. I'd become a sustainability consultant during that time. So when I wanted to come back to the craft, I wanted sustainability baked into what I was doing, and I was trying to figure out a Canadian textile that I could use, something that's more local fiber, like the 100-mile diet, right? Mm. And it's not really easily available. I, I happen to have a neighbor who has wool. He he's he's, does sheep, raises sheep, but he doesn't raise them with the idea of them being fiber fleeces. So it takes a fair bit of work for me to get them into a condition I can use them. But I feel better about that than not using them. Um, but I am really excited to hear about what you're learning from yes. other people that are doing yes. similar stuff. So I got very inspired in part by some of my contacts in Iceland, where I have been privileged to spend uh, artist residencies at the Icelandic Textile Center and learning nice. from this small country that's known for Icelandic wool, the very yeah. particular wool, how they think about sustainability, how they think about marketing, how they think about production. And so as I was coming, you know, coming home to Canada regularly and then thinking about, well, what is it that 
is important to us here, yeah. I thought I would check with, with people. You know, I have my ideas, but I'm sure other people have really important and interesting things to say. So last year at Twist, that would mean 2022, I launched a survey of 10 questions that invited people to talk about their, how, their textile practice. What do they do? Yeah. How do they think of themselves as a hobbyist, as an artist? Perhaps they're a, a, somebody who raises animals in some way? Are they a teacher? Uh, What's important to them in terms of their own well-being? Do they find that handwork contributes to their own sense of well-being? And then what's important to them in terms of the well-being of the planet? Are they finding, you know, even before this 2023 seasons of crazy weather and fires, last year was already pretty tumultuous with climate change, were people making choices for more sustainable materials? And if they were or they weren't, what were the factors in their own choosing? You know, all this question around material choices. So we've been, uh, I'll give a big shout out to my research assistant, Van Randall, who's been helping me tabulate all the results. I'm grateful for her help. We had a total of 190 190 surveys come back to us. Some were done online, some were done in paper and sent in by mail. 102 of those were in English and 88 were in French. Okay. And so a vast majority, 154, were hobbyists. These were you know, a lot of people here or also who got contact through the, to the survey through online means yeah. or at local yarn stores in Montreal. About 60 described themselves as artists, 27 at, as teachers, and 20 were entrepreneurs. Okay. So 48 put themselves in more than one category, so almost uh, a quarter of the group that across okay. categories. And as we can imagine, very, very many found personal benefit. You know, they, they well, appreciated, yeah. you know, the opportunity to slow down, to relax, to, uh, to think about um, something or nothing, depending on what they were doing yeah. in their own handmaking. Um, but uh, also people were quite interested in the sustainability side of things. Okay. There was only 10 so that would be approximately 5% who said they were not interested in environmental issues at all. Okay, interesting. Uh, so there were a lot of people who were concerned with the same things that you are, with something local, with something that's within their you know, immediate neighborhood, yeah. whether, whether they think of that as driving distance or biking distance or walking distance, something that reflected their reality in yeah. some way or another and that with their purchase they could then support their community. But there's a limit to that, you know, in terms of what's available in some stores, what labeling there is that either does or doesn't identify where things are from and this question of traceability. And then there are also other considerations such as price point. That's something that was really important for people. You know, we have to remember, I think of Anna Hunter's work um, in Sheep, Shepherd and Lamb and other books, her her book recently on Canadian wool, but other work that she has done that finds that it costs a minimum of about 30 Canadian dollars to produce a skein of yarn. Yeah. So that's $30 for one skein. And if you're making a sweater that's eight skeins, that's a considerable investment that's not possible for everybody. Right, right. And so I think there are those questions around accessibility and justice that factor in for some people. Some people are concerned with the idea of being able to wash 
being able to wash wool. Right. And so they would choose for something like superwash, which has environmental implications because of the chemistry that's used to treat the wool to make it super washable it then uh it it has environmental implications both in the production and in the ongoing use sure sure so people are concerned about this but there's a practical reality that comes in always so the top four choices that people had for uh choosing yarn or main factors were the touch feel and the texture you know we we yeah we well, go we with all, our hands yeah we all feel imagine. like that yeah yeah uh cost price affordability was part of it strength durability washability was one and then there was the whole idea of the coup de coeur, you know falling in love with a yarn you see something and you think oh i want to make something with that i walk through here and i i, I walk I every booth i'm like oh uh, no i can't I do that <laughs> so it's it's you know it's it's more or less the yeah. kind of information that i think many of us would have expected and so it this research now provides the groundwork for phase two. And what is phase and two? So look phase like? two yeah. is starting coming up the end of this month, August, into the fall, where we will be hosting a series of hybrid talks, Zoom and in person at Concordia, for people a little bit information offering about wool and the issues around creating and promoting and selling wool in Canada. But we're also inviting those who wish um, to have the opportunity to work with Canadian wool. So I have yeah. a, a quantity to distribute to people who nice. are part of the survey who said they wanted to continue on. I'll be getting back in touch with them. They'll each get a skein of Canadian wool that's been naturally dyed. That's nice. also in part of this. And a choice of, we'll send them several different one skein wondered patterns, either a okay. hat or a nice. cowl or a mitts and invite them to knit along with us. So we'll okay. have uh, in-person and virtual, for those who are outside yeah. Montreal, knit-alongs that follow along with the talks. Nice. One of the talks is on darning by an artist from the UK, Celia Pym, who does okay. beautiful, beautiful, thoughtful work around darning and repair, because we also want to be able to maintain yeah, our yeah. beautiful things yeah, as yeah, we go absolutely. through the years. I've been really excited by seeing a lot more visible mending out yeah. there and mm-hmm. people taking that time to do mending. And I think that it's like you talked about the pricing and the cost around Canadian wool and, and a, a skein of, of Canadian wool. And I think that we need to also step back maybe and recognize the value in what we're getting, not only for the, the materials, but the time that it takes that that investment that we give into those materials, suddenly whatever we're making is much more precious. Yeah. And it's not something we're just going to throw out or, or feel like it, it doesn't contribute to fast fashion. It's really much more part of that slow movement. Absolutely. And I think it's important to recognize the value of that. Yeah. And there's some all, all other interesting work to be done around laundry habits. Yeah. You know, I mean, here in North America, I think perhaps because most of us have been sort of educated or socialized through the idea of soap operas, we're washing everything all the time. Right. You don't actually need to do that, especially with wool. One of the things I found in Iceland, they taught me this, was if you hang your wool outside in the wind, a lot of odors and surface dirt will go. So you don't actually need to even wash it. Nice. I once was putting gas in the car there and it splashed all over my sleeve and I thought, 
oh no, I have this one really warm sweater, I don't want to get it wet. So I put it out overnight in the Iceland wind. Iceland should be called Windland, but it's, you know, <laughs> lots of wind. And the odor was entirely gone the next Amazing. morning. So, I mean, it can't do that to everything. Yeah, yeah. But there are some options and thoughtfulness that we can have around laundry and thinking about what we need to wash and how. And, and what we've normalized now yeah. and maybe what we can change. Yeah. 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 Um, so were there any surprises in this? So if you take off your analyst hat and, and you, you more of your um, summary hat, is there any surprises from your perspective in, in this? Terms of, in terms of data, I would say um, no. Okay. But in terms of feeling, I was thrilled by the passion. Okay. You know, people were very committed to this. I'm not the, you know, we're not the only okay. ones who are really <laughs> into sustainability and fibers. They were very thoughtful, very conscientious, willing to write out a couple of papers, oh. of, of a couple of pages worth of answers or type it into the orgi. Uh, so it's quality, and, not quantity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were really, really engaged I survey mean, still respondents. 190 is a lot yeah. of respondents. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, I had no idea what to expect. I, I was thinking if I get 25 or 50, I'll be thrilled. But, right. you know, I got way more than that. That's awesome. So I was very, very appreciative of people's implication. Everybody pretty much agreed that there is more education work that needs to be done. Right. And so that's why I feel very fortunate to be situated at Concordia, where my job is to educate. And yeah. so I've got a whole group of you know, young adults and older adults yeah. who also feel quite passionately around questions of justice, environmental justice, sustainability, and social justice, yeah. uh, who, are, who are looking for new ways forward and better ways forward than for people what, of my generation have found so far. Which is super exciting, yeah. yeah and yeah. it's one of the reasons that I do the podcast that I do is trying to help people come to some little understandings of the different lenses that we can look at sustainability mm -hmm. in textiles. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, there is no one right answer. There no. is no one formula. And there's no one material or one, yeah. like you say, there's the social piece as well as the, the equitability and the materials, the yeah. environment. There's, it's so many different lenses that we end up looking at yeah. sustainability from. And it's not one type of fiber either. It's not no. just wool. It's not just cotton. It's not just hemp or linen. It's, it's all of those different materials that we might be using. And it's the polyesters and the plastics that are out there. How do we use them now yeah. that we've created them? What do we do with this? Yeah. How do we find circularity in all of the different things we're mm -hmm. doing? So I think all of that's hugely important. I also hope to see a real shift away from synthetics where we don't need them. Yep. When you consider that synthetics are now 66% of the textile market, know, it's crazy. that's basically you know World War II and since, right? That's yep. how things have shifted. Yep. Wool is 1%. And crazy. so wool is such a miracle fiber. It deserves more than 1%. It sure does. So, yeah, it sure does. Yeah, well, so and, and even just, in the, the cotton world, it's 40% of the, the fiber yeah. globally. And the organics is 1%. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, but at least at least it's there. It's, there. it's, you know, it's now it's measurable. There. It wasn't yeah. measurable for a long yeah. time. Now it's now actually... It's, and I think yeah. that's another thing that many of the survey respondents said. They looked back to their great-grandmothers, to their grandmothers, you know, to their mothers. And some of them were educating themselves where that chain of gifting of knowledge and of practices had gotten disrupted for yeah. one reason yeah, or yeah. another. And they're looking back to 
more traditional and historic practices that were more in keeping with working locally, working sustainably, working respectfully with all creatures and our soil and trying to find ways to integrate that into our lives now which have the complexity of being now as yeah. well. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's a real movement into that um, realm and, and an acceptance and a growth that's happening around slow textiles, mm-hmm. really. And yeah. it's all that that en- encompasses. Yeah, yes. I think there's a more awareness now than there was when I was growing up, mm-hmm. for sure. For sure. Absolutely. I can remember things, you know, adverts on television of, you know, just use this and then throw it away as though there was an away place that was, you know, kind of a good place to be. Where is away? Exactly. There is no away. No. I mean, away is everywhere now. So, And I think there's more awareness of that now. I think so too. I want to thank you so much for talking to me. This is really, really cool. And I know that we will have more conversations. I look forward to that. For sure. Thank you so much. I love that there is research happening out there in the world where we get to explore all the different kinds of ways to approach sustainability and get to understand what people are wanting in those realms of textiles and how they're what they're gravitating towards right now. And I really love that there's people out there that are interested in knowing that and collecting data and helping us all to understand the different trends and movements that are happening in the industry and and in our communities. Um, the fact that we're looking at not only sustainable practices, sustainable materials, and social justice in all of that as well. It's super, super important. And I'm excited that they're doing that work. And I'm definitely going to continue following what they're doing. My next guest I've actually had on the show before, um, Carrie Wiley from Big Blue MoMA. And I love chatting with Carrie. She and I get into the weeds pretty quickly with the different ideas of what sustainability means. We talk more about fair trade because she's working with a product and in, in an industry where she is keeping that in mind in when she is doing the business that she's doing. But we also talk a little bit about her own practice and her own interests in textiles and how that's been connecting with her again in her life. And we talk about what sustainability in business in the textile world can mean. So it's a bit of a different lens that we're looking at it from. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was really nice to dig a little deeper with Carrie and get into some more conversation with her. And I expect I will have a lot more conversations with Carrie. I'm, I'm always happy to talk to you. I know, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know if, any, if you folks don't know Carrie, Carrie Wiley is the uh, big, big Blue MoMA Baskets. She's got a basket right there. I have a basket right here. You'll see baskets all throughout the festival. Um, and those are Carrie's baskets. So uh, we've talked already, but yes. I want to talk more about it. So talk to us a little bit. Tell us the story about Big Blue MoMA Baskets. And let's talk. Let's dig into that a little bit. So... My company brings baskets over from West Africa, and I support a community in uh, in West Africa, right on the northern border between Burkina and Ghana, Burkina Faso and Ghana, called Bogatanga. And it's a very important craft to the region. These baskets are all handmade by the villagers, both men and women, but primarily by women, um, of elephant grass, which is grown local to the region. I buy them fair trade, of course, 
So tell um, us a little bit about what oh, that you love means. asking me that I love question. asking that question. So fair trade is this great big thing that we get to say. It's kind of like greenwashing. Well, what does that mean? What does fair trade mean? Yeah, it is a bit of greenwashing. Like, I, first of all, I mean, I love what's happening at this festival with sustainability, shopping local. I am a huge fan of that slow fashion. It's all I do. Um, the baskets for me are a very personal thing. I have a degree in, in textile design and weaving. Um, from Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary. And I love me some weaving. I really, really, it's something that is like really in my heart. I am a weaver. Um, I buy these baskets from the people there as opposed to getting them made here or doing anything here um, because it supports a community that otherwise would not have an economic, viable way of supporting themselves. So that's kind of my way of apologizing for not being local, um, because I think that that's always a loaded question, sure, right? Sure, of course. Um, fair trade, to get back to your question. Yeah. Fair trade. Um, a lot of people claim to be fair trade. Fair trade would indicate that you give the people that you're buying from a fair price that they can support themselves on. Um, of course we do that. Of course we do that. I do that here. I do that there. Um, but to take it a step further, um, my husband and I started work in Ghana doing volunteer work, and we worked with a lot of non-government organizations, NGOs they're called. And what we saw was NGOs would go in, they would say build a well or put up a latrine is another common one in Ghana. And they educate the people and they pay them $5 to come to the meeting. So everybody in the village comes to the meeting because it's a very impoverished area. And the NGO gets their numbers that they need, but they don't teach anybody how to maintain the, the latrine or the well. And so a year later, the well is poisoned. The latrine is not used. It's not maintained we started doing NGO work and we built a shea butter mill in a small village. My, in my past life, I was actually a private label bath and body formulator. And so I had all those connections. And so I thought, yes, shea butter, I can do that. I can help them out. But I was kind of phasing out of that part of my business, right? Um, so we went over there, we gave them a micro loan. That's a very common term. We gave them a lot of our money and we said, which was a lot of money for us, um, we said, okay, we're going to build this for you, and then you're, you're good. You can do whatever you need to do, right? Like, you're, you're good. We're going to walk away. We did exactly what an NGO did. We made a major mistake because we didn't get them through that. We, didn't, we just assumed that we were, like, giving them the best thing that we could possibly give. And then we walked away, and they, you know, the, mill, the mill is no longer being used. So that was our mistake. For me, buying the baskets, I am, and keeping my business running here, because let's face it, I benefit, I'm a for-profit business. Um, I make money, they make money, and we keep this going. And so for me, that's my sustainable that's part of my business. Yeah. 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 I don't want to just go in, do what I think they need, and then walk away. I want this to be a long-term th thing. It's more of a relationship. It is a relationship. And yeah. when we started buying, 
we interviewed quite a few. You have to have, to have a collector in the area because that's that's how they control what leaves and what you know. Um, so you have to have a collector, and we talked to quite a few, and we wanted to make sure. Like I said, I'm not going to come in and buy one or two shipments of baskets. I am thinking long-term sustainability. I'm thinking I want this to be a relationship with the villages. And creating an that industry, we buy from, really. And creating an industry. Yeah. Well, I mean, the industry existed. I'm not going to take credit for that. Sure. The industry did exist. Okay. Um, but I want to participate and I want to contribute. Yeah. And help this industry to grow. Yeah. Yeah. So part of, being part of that yeah. growth in that industry. Yeah. yeah. And so when you are dealing with the folks that are there making these baskets, you actually know all of the people that are making the baskets, right? Well, now we've gotten to the point, pandemic, we didn't travel, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right. So we haven't been there in a while. And we kind of have grown a lot in the last four years. We're going in January, and I'm hoping to spend quite a bit of time just getting to know the weavers and stuff. I have woven with them. I have met a lot of the weavers. I love that because... I, I don't I don't know. If you've come into my booth and you are a weaver and we start talking about weaving or mushroom hunting, that's my other thing, right? <laughs> um, you know that I can just open up and be totally passionate about it. I love weaving. It's somebody in art school said to me, I didn't choose weaving, weaving chose me, and that's how I feel. Like getting a little misty just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, talk to me then a bit about the about that history for you with weaving. Tell me a little bit more about that. Are you going to get back to it? I am. Yeah. Yeah, I'm back to it. I. Yep. Yeah, I took a 20 year hiatus from weaving after I graduated from art school because I thought there was no jobs in weaving. And so I went off and I started my own business and I did that business and then I did another business and then I did another business. And then we moved out here and my husband's family had a loom, a four harness, tabletop, 24 inch loom. And it was an antique and it was sitting in my sister-in-law's basement covered with dust. And so I brought it home. And I took it apart, and I oiled it, and I took the rust off. And I thought, you know, like nobody really knows what a loom is in this family, and so I'm just going to give it some TLC. And it was during the pandemic, so I wasn't leaving the house very much. I needed something to do, basically. And then I got finished, and I thought, I'm just going to throw a warp on and see what happens. And now that loom is my constant, and since then I've bought three other looms. Okay, so you're back in. Then I, oh, I'm back in. I'm deep, man. I am deep back in. Yeah. Yeah. And so with having had some conversations now around sustainability, are you starting to, are your wheels turning about how you can bring that into your weaving? Have you gone there yet? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that happening and, and just life, right? Like you and I had a conversation about uh, some of the businesses here, some of the small businesses at Twist that you and I talked to yesterday. Yeah. Um, I am fascinated about the, new, the next generation of entrepreneurs approaching their business from sustainability first. Yeah. Right? So it's not an afterthought. It's not an afterthought. It's, it's you know, you're entering into this, you know, you're entering into this thinking about the future and not just how much money I can make, but how can I make my life and the world better. And I just love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love seeing that the businesses that are starting to really foster that as 
it's it's baked into their ethos. We were talking to the oh, baker yeah, the baker it. here it was, is a great little uh, yeah. play on words, but it really is baked into everything that they're doing. It's it's this consciousness behind every decision that they make within their business. Is this a sustainable decision? Is this something a direction that I want to go in? And having that consciousness and awareness in the decisions you make, even just as crafters, even as just as individuals, having that consciousness and awareness with every decision gives you that opportunity to just pause and slow down a little bit about your next decision and about your next path on whatever it is you're creating. And that, you need that, we need that as individuals, but we also need that collectively. Yeah. We need people to make conscious decisions about what they're doing. Yeah. You know, it's difficult to be altruist you always have a when you're when you're in business i mean obviously you have your own um motivations you have your own bills to pay i mean it's just it's just a fact of life right yeah. you have things that you you have to make money everybody has to make money yeah um but i think sustainable business is about everybody sharing in the the profit and everybody sh- you know working together right like I, I the way i explain my fair trade in my business is everyone makes what they need to to continue going on you know, um, the the weavers make it, the people who collect the grass make it, the dyers make it, the collectors make it, the shipping company makes it, the, you know, because we use Canada Post, right? So Canada Post charges a lot. We all know that. Um, and they have to make their money. Um, and the retailers, because I'm primarily wholesale, the retailers have to make their money too. So there's a lot of people in there that have to make a fair trade, right? A fair yeah. amount of money all in order to keep going, in order yeah. to make my business sustainable so that I can support the women and the men who are the weavers. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sitting in and chatting with me. Thanks. Hey everyone. It's Bridget, the sustainable quilter. I wanted to let you know about the green stitchers hive. It's our brand new online community. It's a welcoming space where we can connect, share knowledge and resources and support each other in our journey towards sustainable textile practices, whatever that means to you, quilting, weaving, knitting, felting, anything. Inside the Hive, we have workshops, monthly challenges, live Q&A sessions, live lectures with guest speakers, and opportunities to connect with other like-minded people. You can access the Green Stitchers Hive on my website at BridgetOflaherty.com. Can't wait to see you there. My next guest is Muddy of Faust, and she is going to be talking to us today about fiber sheds and specifically Fiber Shed Quebec. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. There's some collaborations going on with universities as well um, and post-secondary spaces and working with farmers and working with textile artists and textile folks to understand about the process sort of the the from farm to to clothing the farm to fiber trail that happens so i had a really interesting conversation with her and uh, talking about it not only from um from animal fibers but and protein fibers, but also from vegetable fibers. So really interesting stuff that's going on out there in the industry. And it was a great conversation. So welcome to another bit for Threads of Sustainability. I'm Bridget O'Flaherty and I have Marie-Ev and you are going to tell us a little bit more about the projects you're involved in. And I, while you're talking, I'm probably going to want to ask you a thousand questions. 
So give me a little bit of your background and what what's bringing you here to Twist. Okay, so a little bit of my background. I'm professor at university at L'École Supérieure de Mode, which is a fashion school at University of Quebec in Montreal. I used to be program director, but I, I now stepped down to start at Fibershed Quebec. Nice. So with a group of professors, uh, because I think I was very fortunate to know many of my colleagues and many people that works around the industry, we've started Fibershed Quebec, which is a movement that it started in California. Everyone knows about it. But the, the particularity of the one in Quebec is that we're doing a university research project with it. Nice. So everyone that brought some question, this is it. So my background is professor, and I've been teaching in Hong Kong for years, and then in Pennsylvania. Okay, so you're and I'm professor. But what what is your what's your thing? What do you love? Oh, I teach um, product development at university and textile and clothing. So that's why I'm really like to work with what materials. I like. Do you weave? I like about everything, but I. Every semester, I ask the students what they would like to work on. Because it's a class called product development, the base is yeah. the same. So because I want them to really enjoy, I ask them what they would like to start a project as. So it could be milk, weed, to linen, to hemp, to yarn, to sheep, wool, anything. But me... I really like wool. <laughs> I like wool. Okay, okay. That's what I really wanted to know is what do you like? So yeah. why, um, that's I guess why the drive towards a fiber shed for Quebec. What, what brought you there? Um, probably because my experience with the students. Um, and I have to say in 2013, I was teaching at Philadelphia University and I brought the students to a farm okay. and they were raising Angora goats. And I could see that the students are really really interested when they know where the fabric comes from, well, the yarn and everything. So when Rebecca Burgess started her fiber shed, I was following a lot of things that she was doing. So at one point, I wasn't able to be program director and doing all of that at the same time. So that's why I I said, okay, I'm just going to start Fiber Shed Quebec, and that's going to be so much fun. And and how does, so I know that there's fiber sheds across Canada, and yes. how do they link together? Oh, well, a do lot they? of, yeah, sometimes okay. they do. There's online meetings that we could, like, join together, and there's also an online meeting every month that we could share with all the fiber sheds around the world. Okay. So, okay. It, it's and quite... So- I understand what a fiber shed is, but people on my podcast, sometimes they're quilters, oh. so they may not know actually what a fiber shed is. Probably everybody in the room here does. You don't know what a fiber shed is. Okay. Oh, so nice. tell us what a fiber shed means. Okay. So fiber shed means, are we able to um, start from our roots, like what we have as it could be growing hemp or it could be starting wool from our sheep to transforming it within the... Um, a radius of 100 miles, that's theory. Like the 100-mile diet. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, you could put it into, for us, garment. Yeah. So it's a whole idea of being very local produce. Sure. And valuing what we have as our, in French we say, from our terroir, so, but it's soil to soil. It's really soil to soil. So I'm working really on natural fibers, 
And at the end of the day, what could we do with them so they don't go into... So the fiber shed doesn't necessarily just mean wool. It's really no. any any fibers, any textiles that are within a region. Yes. And how they're being... So what are some of the other fibers that are being used and being promoted now? What are we starting to see? So because Fiber Shed Quebec is quite new, we had a big meeting in uh, last year. And we asked the people, as I do with my students, what would they like to be working on for us this year? So we're working on linen, flax linen. Amazing. And we're working on wool, sheep wool. So I had two criteria. I told the people, I said, I want to have one that is grown naturally, that, that grows. Yeah. And the other one, which is an animal fiber. So one is a vegetable fiber, the other one is animal fiber. So we could both work on parallel with the group of professors and knowing, like, knowing more about it and what are the issues with each one of them and the opportunity, what are they put. Yeah. So once we're going to be able to produce, let's say, flax, well, then probably we're going to go look at hemp and probably, right. but it could be anything. It's just that for us, we said, why don't we be the expert in these two? Yeah, yeah. So are, are we starting to see flax, like farmers, are they taking on flax? Uh, we're doing a big project with uh, La Région called Métis, like... Okay. Um, but Saint Laurent, sorry, uh, Métis, yeah. um, and we're looking at it really, really carefully, and we're hoping that the government will in be involved. So, for a few reasons, for a reason that is political, as you know, we try to grow here more and ev everything like that. And the other reason is we're talking a lot about climate change. Sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. everyone knows about that. But the climate change is something that we have to look at a big picture. If you look at the global world, well, hemp uh, and flax could grow. It needs to be in a place where it's close to water and stuff like that. So they have all the expertise, let's say, in, in France and in Belgium. But it's been four summers that it's super hot over there. Right. So when we talk about climate like change... a little more temperate, right? Yeah, I think we're, we, we like to think that we are the place in the whole world where we have the best climate to grow flax yeah so that would be like our next goal hopefully within the that's, next 10 years being exciting. the place on the planet where you grow flax. i decided to do a little sample plot of flax myself this year so it's a little three by 15 foot sample plot i have no idea what i'm doing but i'm i'm trying it out and i'll get to the end of the season and figure out how to process it and uh, see how it goes yeah and it's amazing because another thing for us for fiber shed it was like having a a vegetable fiber and an animal fiber. We have four seasons here. We have this really, during July, it could be so warm. And during winter, you know how it is. <laughs> no need to explain. But the point is that I keep telling my students, wearing flax or linen is a little bit like a screen, you know, in your windows. This is yeah. like our summer. And whereas you when you wear nice wool, well, it, yeah, it's the insulation, so yeah. it's the double windows, so it's yeah, and we need both here in Quebec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would think I would argue across Canada. We, yeah, we need both, really. Yeah. And so, what kind of um, so what kind of growth are you seeing in the fiber shed? Like, how is it? Are you seeing a lot of support for it? We do more than what we could expect. So we're all doing it. Because we like it. There's no fees. There's no anything. We right. just do it because we believe in it. 
uh, we'll need more people to help us out to to promote. But within the first year, it, it was like we were overwhelmed. We never thought people were going to respond that much. So, and we want to make it very, not scientific, but we want to make it very knowledgeable for people. So sure. academic we, at least, yeah. It's something that is really come value. Like some people were saying, oh, Marie, you know what? We can't wash wool. Oh, no, we're not allowed to wash wool in Canada. Oh, no, we're not allowed. No, 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 we're not allowed. That's why we have our wool washed like everywhere else. Yeah. So we finally got to the end of that. And no, it's not true. Right. We we're, we could wash wool here in Quebec and in Canada. There's no regulation that says no. The issue becomes afterwards saying, okay, well, we want to protect ourselves for the environment. So we're looking at the, the water that is going to be used water. So, but... So this is what I'm saying. It's yeah. not, oh, I hear that you can't do this, or I hear that Rambouillet is not good, or it's good, or it's a good wool, because we were talking about that. Well, yeah, it's the cousin of the Merino, and we have it some here in Quebec, so in Canada. So going through the processes and learning what can and what can actually be done, and yes. trying to uh, demystify. That's the word I was looking for in English, yes. Demystifier. Yeah, the, the, the myths that are out there trying to get rid of those and, and break those barriers and figure out what we can really do. Yeah, and do it, doing it right, you know, like doing it, like, and so, make it, it nice. So how, um, so it's great. I think it's awesome that the fiber shed is working that way and working with farmers and growers to, to produce the materials. But I also know that in Canada, we have a lack of processing available. So how is that being handled? How do you so we don't do have that? we don't have that many meals. We don't have a yeah. meal in Quebec as for say. Right. So but there is quantity that goes with that. So when we look at it, we look at it as a big picture. So you have the shear that we don't have that many. Uh, we have the mills that we don't have. So, okay, and we don't know what are the microns. So we need to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And it has to be valuable on an economic point of view. Sure. We we talk a lot about the environment, the climate change and everything. But if there's no money to make, no one wants to be involved. I mean, we all need to buy our grocery at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Sustainability so, still means profitable as well. Yes, yeah. the, the three of them. So at the end of the day, what we're looking at is, okay, what would be the... Um, best economic model that would be okay for everyone so you know as for example we don't have like these these big big breeds here in Quebec or in Canada so a shearer has to travel a lot to right. get to one point to another then the the toison the the the, the shear the fleece, the fleece sorry yeah. has to come back and it has to be treated yeah. and then there's some quantity needed to just start the machine for the meals. Right. So we're looking at what would be the best quantity to have a mini meals, as for example. Right. So trying to get them the localized micro businesses so that yeah. they're still profitable. Yes. What, what and we're even looking at could it be mobile mobile? Like could yeah, it go well, yeah, could mill, we go yeah. from one place to another? Okay. Um, so these are all questions that we're looking yeah. at. And, and and in terms of the, the mills that are out there, there are a few more popping up, right? There is one, it's Perry Sound just opened up a couple of years ago. Yeah, we have and two that are... East Coast as well, right? Yes, but there's Filature-le-Mur also that is in Quebec okay. that has a lot of... Um, but they typically 
work on 1,000 pounds at the same time, but right. they're willing to, to try to see, okay, we need to have it when it comes in this way and this way. Uh, les bas durés, durés, so you know the gray socks yeah, that we know with the red and the... Yeah, yeah. They have um, a meal also, and they're willing to start and work with the project as well. So cool. it's only a question of knowing who's doing what and who's doing it Starting best. Starting to pull the pieces together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so that we can start to build those businesses and make them viable. Like I think that was one of the things that happened with the mills across Canada. We used to have a, we used to have a very robust textile industry in Ontario, for sure, yes. and in Quebec. There was a very robust textile mill industries. And we don't know and the value of our, our, our fleece, neither. Right. So that's another issue. Like, people are saying, uh, oh, I know, because I, I could feel it. Well, today, there's some equipment that exists that are super well, like, precise and yeah. calibrated. And so I'm like, okay, there's no one that has one in Canada. We'll buy one. This is a, yeah, a research so project. So we could see what yeah. we have. And knowing what we have, then we could improve it. Right. If you don't know what you have, it's a fingering. It's a, okay, well, microns. It's a we feeling, want to know yeah. microns. And we want to know, like, the back, the, the side, and, like, which part could we use and for right. what. Right, right. And, and then we could improve. Right. And so how to value those different parts of the sheep and figuring out how to keep those being, I, I think it's getting back to the farmers with how they're treating their animals and how they, not that they're treating them badly necessarily, but they're not treating them with the idea of the fiber in mind most of the time in Canada. My neighbor that I get my wool from, um, he raises sheep with no thoughts of the, because they, they can't get much from, the fleece when they take it to the market, they they'll get five dollars, and that costs that much to shear each sheep. So it's not it's a waste product. They think of it as a waste. If product. they have five dollars, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them that yeah. I visit have thirty cents a pound, and it's it costs them about four dollars to get shear. Yeah. So we went across Quebec this summer to visit a lot of them. So at the end of the day, if you have 1,200 heads, as they say, yeah. and you have them to be sheer, and it it's just costs you, like you're, you're paying $4 a head, yeah. and then you have the transport to bring it wherever it needs to be brought. It costs you more to do that. And you get six months later, because they told me they get the checks like maybe six months later for 30 cents a pound. Since the pandemia, many of them are just burning them or just like putting them. them. So yeah. they don't care about like the way it grows on the, no. the and I don't blame anyone I don't blame yeah. them yeah but now because the project has started they're saying if you tell me that it's going to be worth for my 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 toison to be used yeah I'll do something about it yeah and some of them it's not only a question of money it's a question of Really? You're going to use it? They're going to be so proud that we're just using it. Yeah, yeah. So, so my neighbor is very happy that I take it. I, I can't process all the fleece he has available. Like, I'm one little person, and I'm washing them by hand and carting by hand, and I can't do 30 fleece in, no. at a time. So no. I, I take one or two fleeces from him a, a year, but he's really happy that I'm doing it. I guess. That, you know, so. I guess. I visit one. She had over a 1,000 head, and I mean... I saw the stock that she had, a full container was going, like, 
And she says, I just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And again, I'm not blaming anyone. I mean, there's so much she could do. She has to take care of the animal. And I mean, the, la, la bergerie, the barn is like impeccable. It's right. so, so nice. You could eat on the floor. I mean, it's yeah. very, very clean. So it, they are taking care of the animal. But that was not part of their business plan. So, right. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier with uh, Carrie, the idea of some newer entrepreneurs coming in, building sustainability into their business model first, right? Yeah. So that it, it, they're starting to think about these other things that are beneficial not only to their pocketbook, but also to the planet and to... There's the few of them right? that already exist. Here in yeah. Quebec, we have Brebis Beau Rivage as one of them. And she has, she made, she said, a third of her revenue is from the meat, a third is from the yarn, and a third is from the milk. Okay. So, and she does it in the area that is close to her place. And it's super great. I mean, it's super great. But she has a business plan that values everything. Yeah. Which is amazing. It's interesting to see that starting to come. I, I, I'm excited yeah. by that kind of stuff. And she's so young and she's like... I know. This is what we need. We need young people to take this up and go, yes, this is where we want to go with things. Yes. So, and we need other people to also take it up, but it's nice to see it from the young people for sure. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. Okay. I want to get more... Uh, we'll meet again and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the different connections we can make. But if people are wanting to learn more about the Fiber Shed, where can they go to do that? Yes, they could go on Instagram, they could go on the website, they could email us. And it's just Fibershed Quebec? Fibershed Quebec. Okay, perfect. Yes. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time. I really I appreciate thank it. You. So I hope you really enjoyed those conversations that I got to have. An interesting diversity of expertise and experience and uh, just some interesting conversations to have. I'm really enjoying being able to dig into some of these other sides of sustainability and textiles and different ways that we can look at that from the different perspectives of different fibers because often I am looking at it from the quilting perspective or the art perspective but when we get down to the actual fibers that's such an important part of the conversation around sustainability so I, I'm really glad I got the opportunity to do this with Twist and I want to tell you a little bit about Twist so this is a fiber festival that happens annually um, they've been this this summer was the 11th edition and it happens in San André Avalen in Quebec and that is about an hour hour and a half outside of the Ottawa region and it's it's a really it's a sweet little town for one thing to go to and Twist has been working really really hard over this last decade or so to try and bring together um, important players that are in the textile industry in the fiber industry in Canada and they run things year round actually they do year round workshops they have podcasts they have um, various different things going on that are celebrated from Twist so it's worth checking out you can find them at festivaltwist.org online and uh, it's really worth taking a look and if you can fit that into your schedule next year, I know it will be another great festival. Thanks again for listening. And I look forward to talking to you again next time. If you're interested in a community that engages with sustainability in quilting and textiles, you can join the learning hub at BridgetOflarity.com. There you will find memberships, online courses, supplies and resources for sustainability and my textile art. You can also book me to speak with or teach your group. You can find me on social media at The Sustainable Quilter. 
Don't forget to comment, like, and share, and to follow me on your favorite podcast app so you won't miss an episode. Thanks for joining me, and I'm so excited to share this journey with you. Until next time, happy stitching.